Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people and how to apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. Learn more about the program and our ministry when you visit walkintruth.com. Now here's the conclusion of Pastor Michael's teaching in Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 through 23, called, The Kingdom of Heaven is at Hand. Look, this is about rejection of the king and the kingdom, so don't take it over personally. Shake it off. Move on. Be shrewd, be even cunning, but be gentle. Say to people, look, we, we as believers, we bring no harm. We, we bring a gospel of peace. But beware, Matthew 10, 17, of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Even though I think Jesus forecast the, uh, some things that happened in the book of Acts, it's hard to deny that um, this happened to the apostles. Notice, beware of men, they will deliver you. The you is the 12, but maybe going out to the Apostle Paul and others. Remember, Peter and John are in the court of the Sanhedrin in Acts 4 and 5. Uh, In Acts 24 through 26, if you go and read those chapters, Paul appears before Felix the governor and before King Agrippa. In a court setting, there's even an attorney for the other side, and Paul's got to make an argument in a court setting with his life literally on the line. Notice the mention of synagogues. They will scourge you in the synagogues. We know how many times uh, Paul went through beatings with his missionary partners, etc. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake. We think of the, uh, the apostle Paul, but um, Jesus stood before the governor, Pontius Pilate. So he's saying, look, you're gonna, you're gonna have an opportunity to give a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, whether they're Jewish leadership or Gentile leaders. But when they deliver you up, don't become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. Now, if you're in a crisis situation, Jesus says they throw you in a prison, and they say, you're going to appear before. Some people believe that Paul even appeared before the emperor of Rome. You would imagine you want to kind of plan your speech a little bit. Okay, point A, point B, point C. I'm talking to the governor. I'm talking to the emperor, right? But Jesus says, don't do that. Now, this is not an excuse for pastors not to prepare sermons. Some pastors have taken it this way. Oh, it'll be given to me in that hour what I'm supposed to say. I don't need to study. I'm just going to show up, and I'm going to ask the Lord for the message in the front row while the worship team plays. So a story about a pastor. He's on the front row, and he tells the worship team, play another song. I don't have it. Play another song. I don't have it. Well, by the time they played 15 songs, it's been pretty much like a music (laughs) worship service. So the pastor's now desperate, and he says, Lord, please give it to me. What am I to say? And the Lord speaks to him and says, go up to the pulpit and tell them you didn't study, (laughs) that you're not prepared. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. This verse is not about not studying. Pastors need to be prepared to teach the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 is in a pastoral letter. Uh, The job description of a pastor has been defined. We don't redefine it. It's been defined. Amen? Preach the word. Give yourself to the public reading of scripture. 
Shepherd the flock. Exhort the people. Joel Osteen, I'm just a smiling encourager. (laughs) Well, Joel is a, he seems like a nice guy. Seems like a guy that would be fun to play around a golf or something. But Joel, your job's been defined for you. You can't redefine your job. Now, if you want to be a motivational speaker, then don't call yourself a pastor. How dare you, someone might say. Look, I'm just telling you that the Bible defines the job description. So if we're going to take it seriously, then we're going to say this is the job description and we can't redefine it. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to be harsh. Maybe a little. (laughs) Now notice, wouldn't it be good if we all were so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that we would know, look at the end of 19, how or what we will speak. I have a friend who says he often prays, Lord, help me to know what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and when to be quiet. (laughs) Amen? If you offer this little part of you on the altar each and every day, you'll avoid a lot of mistakes. Amen? You say, well, no one can tame the tongue. Well, yeah, God can. You might not be able to, but God can tame your tongue. Amen? Amen. So, Lord, help me to know how to say things. You know, not like, sorry. Yeah, that's believable. (laughs) Apologize to your brother. Sorry. Anyway. So, we can see the gracious uh, empowering of the Lord in the life of Stephen, Paul, and so many others. Wisdom and power and authority, no one could even answer them. Don't be nervous about what you're going to speak. It's, the, it's not you who speak, 20. It's the spirit of your father who speaks in you. I can tell you, quoting R. Kent Hughes as a pastor, there's times in a sermon where my pace and the insights that flow from heaven are not me. And I feel like I'm flying with wings like eagles. And sometimes I'll go back and listen to a message I gave and I'm like, who's that? That was pretty good. (laughs) There's just a supernatural mystery about preaching. And I'm not saying God doesn't use our personalities because he obviously does. But here's my point. There's the resources of heaven to do what we've been called to do. Amen? And that's beautiful. And now some final verses and they get really hard. And brother will deliver up brother to death. The way the language uh, in the original reads, it's probably capital execution. A father, his child, a children will rise up against parents and cause them, notice, to be put to death. Now, many of us, because of our backgrounds, we are quick to want to uh, fast forward this to a future end time scenario. And things probably in our world prior to the return of Christ are going to get ugly. I'm not going to say probably. They're going to get ugly because it's going to be a Christ-rejecting world and judgment day is going to come. But in the immediate setting here, it's probably specifically referring to the uh, martyrdom of the apostles and those of this group. And if you've ever read anything on the early church in terms of martyrdom, uh, most sources say 11 of the 12 were killed, either beheaded or burned or something like that. It was, you know, Jesus's own 12 were not spared a terrible death. Only John the Apostle, from what I've read, uh, was not killed, although they tried to kill him from some uh, 
church tradition that is available to us. You say, why this reaction and what's going on here? Well, Jesus says you will be hated by all. This, uh, for all you note-takers, write down Matthew 24, 13. It's repeated almost verbatim in the Olivet Discourse, kind of Jesus' sermon about the fall of Jerusalem in the last days. I think it's a near-far sermon. You will be hated by all on account of my name. Uh, Matthew 24, 13 actually says all nations on account of my name. Whose name? The name of Jesus. Have you noticed the name of Jesus is a bit polarizing? Have you noticed how you can talk about God in a, you know, just a generic sense, but bring up the name Jesus and especially say to someone he's the only way? Woo-wee, get ready. You'll be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end. The question is the end of what? Who will be saved? Greek word sozo could be physical deliverance, but largely uh, used for spiritual salvation. It's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Now, everybody's paying attention because we all want to know what in the world does that mean? Now, probably many of us have a theology that we've worked out about eternal security or the lack thereof. Once saved, always saved. Can you lose your salvation? Uh, What is Jesus saying here? Is it endurance through a difficult time or is it someone taking a stand all the way throughout their life no matter what they face? Here's Spurgeon, who probably says it better than I could. Happy are those who can bear persecution and hold on and hold out, even to the end. Of the trial, the close of life, or the termination of the dispensation, such shall be saved indeed. But those who can be overcome by opposition are lost, close quote. Now, let me use a contemporary illustration for you guys. The church went through an unprecedented time, at least for us, in the season of COVID, right? And at first, none of us knew what we were dealing with. And so churches probably, you know, I would say wisely shut down until we knew what was going on. But once we kind of saw through what was going on, it it was crystal clear who needed to be protected and that the doors of the church need to be open. And a thousand churches in California opened on Pentecost Sunday, 2020. But I will say this, as I looked around the landscape, what was missing was backbone. There was very little backbone. And the church cowered to a large degree and tried to hang their hat on certain scriptures, which I think they, in some cases, took out of context. Now, again, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying, think about what COVID was. And it was a scary first couple of months, of course. And some of you may have lost loved ones, so I'm not trying to be callous here. All I'm saying is this. Measure how the church did with that And now take a scenario where people are being killed for saying that they're Christians, where family members are turning others to die. In in the Muslim world, if you become a Christian, some households will literally kill you. We have uh, records of this happening. And then in some Jewish settings, at least historically, they would have a mock funeral and say you were dead to them because you decided to convert to Christianity, so you're dead to us. It's as as though you're dead. Well, Jesus says here, this isn't metaphor. This is going to be reality. So whenever they persecute you, final verse, in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. 
You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Pastor Michael invites you to watch our recent A Step Closer series with guest speaker Red Pen Logic's Tim Barnett. Believe it or not, if you have doubts and questions about your Christian faith, you're not alone. The recent deconstruction movement phenomenon has a number of Christians rethinking what parts of the Bible they identify with. But is the movement simply about having doubts? If deconstruction is just about asking questions, I'm just asking questions, I'm, I'm going through some doubts, then declaring war on it would be wrong and actually unbiblical. But if deconstruction is about leading people away from historic Christianity, then declaring war on it is completely appropriate and biblical. Pastor Michael invites you to watch our recent A Step Closer series with guest speaker Red Pen Logic's Tim Barnett. Download the free Walk-In Truth app available in your app store today. You can also listen to the first part of this conversation when you listen to Walk-In Truth on your favorite podcast app. We'd love to see who's listening, so please connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. Just do a search for Walk-In Truth Show. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance right here on Walk-In Truth. Until the Son of Man comes. Now, I told you that Jesus has forecasted some things uh, into future settings, like in the book of Acts. And futurists who see every time the coming of the Lord is mentioned want to forecast this into the future. Let me just say this to you. This is an area where we can debate within the church. But I don't think this is a future reference. And none other than a skeptic atheist called Bertrand Russell said he thought Jesus had moral, high moral character. Uh, he, he respected him as a nobleman. But he says he got things wrong in the New Testament. You say, Bertrand, what did he get wrong? He lived like in the 1800s. He got wrong his coming. He said he was coming back in, before the cities of Israel were witnessed to. And his audience is obviously the apostles. He was wrong. He can't be God. He can't be who he said he was. That's what Bertrand Russell said. And I will say to you that if, if your lens is quickly to just say, oh, uh, this got to be a last day scenario, and, and certainly the, the current circumstances could allow for that because Israel is back in the land now. And so we could say, well, it's always it's possible, but it wouldn't be a possible interpretation before 1948 <laughs> or 1967 when Israel recaptured Jerusalem. So for 1,900 years, there's no way you could see this as a future situation. Now, people like Warren Wiersbe sees this as future, and I have high respect for Warren Wiersbe, who's now with the Lord. I just want to say to you, this is one way to see it. See the word comes there. We're going to get a little technical just for a moment. I know you can handle it. See the phrase, until the Son of Man comes. The word comes there is erikomai in Greek. It's E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I, erikomai. It is not the technical word parousia used for the ultimate second coming appearances of the Lord. It's a word that's a more common word for comes. And some people have taken this option. Uh, You won't finish going through the cities of Israel before the Lord comes and I'll just come walking up (laughs) before the Son of Man comes. You're like, ah, that seems a little weak. But look, look at the phrase, until the Son of Man comes, and remember, it's anchored in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. We're going to put it up on the screen. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. I'm going to read it to you. The phrase title, Son of Man, 
comes from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Let's see what it says. I kept looking, Daniel 7, 13, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Some sort of like installation or in, uh, celebration of his office, if you will, or kingship. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, in the prophecy of the Son of Man, a title that Jesus uses in the gospel, Daniel shows us a prophecy, but the prophecy does not say that the Son of Man returns to the earth. There's nothing here about returning to the earth. Where does he go? He goes before God the Father, and he's given a kingdom. And there are some scholars like R.T. France, who's written the uh, New International Commentary on the New Testament, uh, uh, an amazing scholar, who said that this is an example of a passage where Jesus is being installed somehow in heaven and giving power and authority over his enemies without it necessitating a second coming understanding. He sees this in phases. For example, some scholars, if you read on this enough, will say they believe this was realized at the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord as he goes to be at the right hand of God the Father and is installed as the King of Kings and therefore his enemies will suffer judgment. You say, well, it says, but until the Son of Man comes, they won't finish going through the cities of Israel. So what could it be? There's a third option. And the third option, I think, has a lot of merit. And here's what it is. The coming in this context is the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus is speaking to the apostles in the immediate setting of that generation. And here's how this works. There were day of the Lord judgments in the Old Testament that foreshadow or are in embryo a future day of the Lord. Stick with me, but here's how it works. When Israel was up to no good in the north or the south, etc., God used Assyria and the armies of Assyria, and he came in judgment through that army. He used the armies of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and came in judgment to the south, to Judah. In other words, God can judge a nation through a foreign army, and it's still the coming of a judgment of God. Now, don't get nervous. There will be an ultimate second coming where Jesus will appear, and every eye will see him. There's no doubt about that. But here... Jesus is most likely talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Now think with me. You won't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Here's what happened. When Jerusalem fell to the Roman armies in AD 70, it was a judgment of God. Jesus predicted the judgment of AD 70, as we have already read. And judgment fell. And when Jerusalem was judged, the Jews were deported from all, to all these foreign lands. It was no longer possible to evangelize the cities of Israel because Jerusalem, and for that matter, the Jewish nation, essentially went out of existence. Are you with me? So the immediate setting seems to be, and I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I, I don't really think it's that big of a deal either way in terms of your overall view of the scriptures and eschatology, but you can see how Bertrand Russell and others cast doubt on Jesus because of a future understanding of this. I think Jesus is most likely saying, this is going to be the judgment of Jerusalem. I'm predicting it. And you won't even evangelize all the cities of Israel until this happens, and then it's going to be impossible to continue that work. 
Now we're about to partake of communion, but I want to just make one other final statement in this sermon. We live in America and we're in 2023. And when I look at nations around the world and I look at it through a biblical lens, no nation is who confesses itself to have Christian foundations is preserved from judgment. And in 1776, we kind of made a declaration of who we were and what we stand for. And we have moved far away from that. And I often pray for our nation. I I cry, I ask for her by name. And I would just say to you, let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for the church in the nation that we would return to God, that we would hear the message of the kingdom for our day, that we would repent and return to the Lord, that we might find times of refreshing and another great awakening in America. It's happened before. A Jesus revolution did happen late 60s, early 70s. It can happen again. Amen? We have hope. We have a great remnant in this nation. Let's keep fighting the good fight. You've been listening to The Kingdom of Heaven is at Hand, Part 3 on Walk in Truth. And that was the conclusion of Pastor Michael's teaching in Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 through 23. If you missed any part of today's program, Walk in Truth is on Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and many more podcast apps. Listen for free to Pastor Michael's teachings in more books of the Bible. We would also love to hear from you. You can email Pastor Michael with your questions you may have from his teachings today, or maybe you have a question about something else, or need encouragement, or prayer. Maybe you'd like to share how Pastor Michael's teachings have affected you. You can email Pastor Michael at contact at walkintruth.com. That's contact at walkintruth.com. You can also find our mailing address on walkintruth.com. Now here's Pastor Michael with a final word. You know, the kingdom of God is a topic that hasn't necessarily gotten a lot of press in many local churches. What is the kingdom of God? Or what is the kingdom of heaven, as we have in the gospel largely of Matthew? And when you think about it, think about kingdom, a kingdom or a realm In the ancient world, all they really knew was kingdoms and kings, and sometimes kings and queens, right? And the king of a realm was a sovereign leader and usually had, you know, 100% authority. And if you had a good king, if you think about the history of the nation of Israel, for example, a good king brought many blessings to a nation. A king that followed God, blessings followed that king, And the fruit of it came out in the life of the nation. And when Israel or Judah had a bad king, and Israel had all bad kings, Judah, you know, a little bit of both, uh, well, the nation paid the price. And so you are, if you're a believer, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is your king. You live for the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't also, that you're uh, patriotic and so forth, but in the end, your allegiance is the, to the King of Kings and to the Kingdom of God. A good definition of the Kingdom of God, Kingdom of Heaven, God's rule over God's people wherever God's people may be. We are citizens of that Kingdom. One day, that Kingdom will be fully realized on the earth. But until that day, we are expanding that Kingdom, taking ground for the Kingdom telling other people how to meet the king, King Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know the king came on a saving mission? He left his throne. He left the glories of heaven and came down to be born a baby in Bethlehem, to 
grow up in a nowhere town, Nazareth, and to be largely um, rejected by his own people. But he went to the cross for the joy set before him. He went to the cross and shed his blood for you and for me to bring you into the kingdom. If you haven't accepted, I should say more accurately, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, he wants to save you. That's why he came. But he's hit you the ball, as it were. You've heard the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life, died on the cross for you, rose from the dead. And he's asking you to repent and become a citizen of his kingdom, to trust him, to come through the narrow gate and trust in Jesus and follow him. That's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It's about King Jesus and becoming his follower and his disciple. And we're going to talk about what it means to be a disciple in the messages ahead of us. These may be the most important messages that we'll cover in a book filled with so much importance. But what does it mean to be a disciple? What does that look like? Well, we're going to talk about that in this in the next three messages ahead of us. And I pray that you'll tune in, tell a friend, and uh, that it will help shape the way you view your own life. This is Pastor Michael, and we'll see you right here tomorrow. As a thank you for your support, we've created the Walk in Truth app. If you'd like to become a Walk in Truth partner, any amount is appreciated. You can now give on the Walk in Truth app or visit walkintruth.com. And join us tomorrow for Pastor Michael's teaching in Matthew 10, 24 through 32, called The Making of a Disciple. I'm Mike Massaro. On behalf of Pastor Michael Lance and Living Truth Christian Fellowship, thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people.